Hello and welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about expatriates and the artistic way they've styled their lives around the world. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. Find yourself shipwrecked in a far off place and Dale, welcome to the show. Try not to plan too much at all. You know, just be spontaneous. I quit the limiting stories. I really try to overcome that fear. I'm going to sail again. I'm going to one more. I got one more sailing. Love her to leave her wild. But it didn't work for me. The American dream wasn't going to work for me because I didn't fit American dream. I had respect that I was a young farmer. Now I'm an old guy. Respect yourself. You know what, Jacob? I'm a secret fan. And I prefer to just be secret. And if you can figure out who Dale Dagger is, then figure it out. And if you can't, then. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. I'm sitting here with Donna Cuthbert, an amazing woman I've met here in Nicaragua who is, at the moment, stationary but has been cycling from Los Angeles to South America with her husband. And as I've gotten to know her over the last weeks, I've realized that she's incredibly special in her being, her presence, in the way she sees the world, because she's a beautiful woman from London, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and somebody who has taken life by the balls. And I thought her story would be um, enlightening for all of us to hear. So I'd like to welcome Donna to the show. Welcome. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm just so excited to have you here and and just get to hear more in depth about the adventures that you've had over the years of travel and the challenges that you've uh, set upon yourself because we had a few conversations earlier this week where you talked a a little bit about um, this, I forget the words you use, but um, it's not necessarily the most conventional way that you choose to travel. It's not like you're getting a, a plane ticket to, say, Australia with a work travel visa and you're going to have, you know, like a safe trip in Australia where you can, you know, the language and like you have chosen to take on adventures that really challenge you and and you need to prepare for, like you spend years of preparation, learning languages before you take on some of these challenges and endeavors. And I think that's what I'd really like to capture and understand your psychology behind that. And then the details of like what you actually did, because I think there's people out there who might like to try it someday. Absolutely, and so they should. Yeah, so maybe let's get started. You're from London. I you grew am. up in a in a what middle class neighborhood in London. Uh, no, uh, working class actually. Working class, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and did your parents travel? Like, what was your childhood like? No, I'm, I'm from a separated family, so my mom, my mom brought us up on her own. Myself and my two younger sisters. Um, my dad had a bit of influence as I was growing up, but sadly passed away when I was fifteen. Um, my mum worked really hard to support us. We didn't see her as much as we would like to because, of course, she's trying to bring up three children on her own and that can become quite costly. So she worked quite hard and did the best that she could, but before us, she had travelled quite a bit herself. I'm her firstborn and she had me when she was 32 and she always says that before us, she had a whole separate life, but ultimately, obviously, as any mother would say, she doesn't feel like her life truly began until she gave birth to me. Of course, of course. So did you grow up with these stories of your mom's adventures that yeah, maybe inspired you? Not really adventures. Um, my mom went to Israel for a few years as um, a young woman, spent around five years living there on a kibbutz. So she does understand a very simple lifestyle. 
That's not to say that we lived a simple lifestyle back in London because, of course, it's very easy to adapt back into, you know, social expectations. But no, definitely, if um, if I were to talk to her about some of the things, she does have an understanding of some of the things that I do. So yeah, let's get into like some of the things that you've done because what I know about you at this point is that prior to this cycling trip that you're doing now with your husband, um, and pre- prior to you actually, I think meeting your husband or marrying your husband, you um, went to Africa. Yeah, I did. You, yeah. you chose to to go to Africa and hitchhike through Africa. Yeah. On your own. Um, well, technically, I wasn't on my own for the whole for the whole journey. I mean, when you land as somebody who has planned to hitchhike through Africa... I had come from India, I might as well put that in there, because India is not easy either. No, not at all. It's one of the hardest countries I've ever been to. Yeah, um, yeah so you went to India prior to I going had, to yeah. Africa. It was my second trip to India, and I went because at the same time that I had planned to do this hitchhiking trip, Nick was riding his motorbike from Singapore to London. So as Nick... We left Singapore together, and then... Um, he rode through India at the same time that I was there because we were obviously trying to maintain a long-distance relationship. And then as he carried on from India, I then went to Africa. So then I spent four months in Africa and he spent four months going from India to um, London. And then I got to London a week before him and he met me there and then we finished the trip together. Okay. So while I was in Africa, he was also busy. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's go. You fly from India to Africa. You yeah. land. You walk out of the airport and you put your thumb out. In. Yeah, so we went to, um, I was with my sister, we went to, um, and we were, I was with my sister, a couple friends, and we all kind of like, we were together some of the time, not together some of the time, like it was real fun, you know, but we were girls. So we, um, we, we started in Nairobi, which is a crazy city, especially at the airport, because you get a real experience as soon as you get there, and the people that I was with had never been to Africa before. So it was a huge, like, eye-opener for them. So we get to Nairobi, and I don't know if you've been there, but, like, you see, it's a, it's a real hustle. Like, even in the airport, it's it's a real hustle. And you get outside, and you've got the standard thing with every, all the taxi drivers and whatever, and then, you know, you find someone that's sort of looks like they're leaving the parking lot, and then you stay. That's how we did it. Always find someone that's going slow and looks like they're going your way. So, and usually people have pickup trucks. So therefore, you're not really in any danger. That's my theory anyway, is that if you sit in the back of a pickup truck, you're, you're pretty sweet. You know, you're not locked inside somebody's car. And to be honest, other than my body, I have nothing for anybody to steal. Like, and I look like a backpacker, you know, and I'd come from India, so. But probably... I think most females traveling, their biggest concern is their physical being and yeah, safety. Warranted, absolutely. And that wasn't a concern of yours? It wasn't, no, okay. it wasn't. I was going on the basis of trusting people and humanity in itself Um, and I feel like I have a really good sense for judging people very quickly and I've only been wrong once so I feel like that's okay and you know what will be will be if you can't change other people you just have to look after yourself. There's going to be bad people, even in this country, in that country, in America, in England, it doesn't matter. I don't feel like I'm in any more harm's way in Africa as I am in in the UK, you know, or in, you know, like California, you know, there's enough things going wrong there on a daily basis. Right. So why not? I'm not going to stop living my life for the what ifs, because otherwise what's the point in living? Right. Well said. Absolutely. So your approach was then to just... Dis- 
basically wait, observe, watch yeah. somebody who's moving into the parking lot of cars and then is approaching. And say, Coming hey. out of the parking lot. So it looks like they were on the plane. Or failing that, which I have done before, is ask people inside the airport if they're driving or if they've got a driver. Because that's the same thing if you're hitching in somebody else's car. And a lot of people in um, Africa have drivers. So especially like, um, you know, the... I'm going to say middle class because you don't even need to be that wealthy in certain countries in Africa to have your own personal driver. Um, and they will always give you a lift. Of course they will, you know. Mm-hmm. They don't say no to people. Mm-hmm. So you had a, you had a basically a little... And they usually speak English. Okay. Yeah. You had a map, though, kind of the direction you were going to no, go. No, not at all. It was literally yeah. you just got into a car Wherever and said, we would catch rides would be where we were going. And the, the most fun one was we were on Zanzibar, which is an island off of Tanzania. We were on Zanzibar, which is absolute paradise. I highly recommend anybody go there. We came back on the ferry. We stood outside the ferry terminal. And we're like, what are we going to do now? Like, where do we go? Like, we've kind of covered this part of, of the continent. Like, we'd already been to Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, Burundi, and, and Uganda. And for everyone point. listening, she hitchhiked through all these countries yeah. to get to where she was on Zanzibar. Yeah. Well, the Sandsbar was a ferry which we paid for, so that... Either way, but that's still incredible. So anyway, so then we were um, sitting outside the um, ferry terminal, and this guy walks up, and he's like, do you want a taxi? And we're like, where are you going? He's like, where do you want to go? We're like, to Zambia, which is about four countries away. He's like, hold on one second. They go away, comes back, talks a bit more, goes away, phone calls are happening, everything's going on. And lo and behold, this car pulls up about an hour later. Because when you're hitchhiking, you can't have a time frame. You have to be flexible. You can't just be like, I want to go now. Like, you have to just wait it out. So about an hour later, this car pulls up, and this guy was called Linus, right? Totally remember him. He's an awesome guy. And he's like, hey, girls, do you want to ride? We're like, where are you going? He's like, I'm going. He was going to Congo. He was relocating a car. So somebody had bought this car in Tanzania, and he was employed to drive it to Congo. But on the way to Congo is the road to Zambia. So he's like, jump in, I need the company. So we did, and we were in this car for five days and five nights. And we slept in the car, we ate in the car, we did everything in this car, and we didn't get out, like, ever. We went to drive through, um, like, shacks, you know, to get food and stuff. Because he, he was on a time frame. And we just, we just jumped in, and the bloke had two CDs. Celine Dion and Maroon 5, right, that we had rushingly bought as we were driving out of, um, out of Dar es Salaam, we were driving out, and the people in the middle of the road are selling stuff, they're selling, like, mobile phone chargers, they're cleaning your windscreen, they're selling these fake rip-off CDs, and we bought these two. We bought a few more, but obviously they, they skipped and didn't, didn't continue to work, but these two survived the entire five days, and I never, ever, ever want to hear Maroon 5 or Celine Dion ever again. <laughs> that makes sense. Complete sense. That is incredible to me. He didn't ask for any money. Mm-mm. He was a completely genuine, nice person. No, we did pay for his food some of the times as well. Like, okay. cause he was a really nice guy. And he he made us laugh a lot. And, yeah, we paid for his food, which is, like, hardly anything. Mm. Like, 50 cents or whatever. Mm. But overall, I mean, most people would pick you up very genuinely, genuinely. Happy, happy to take you anywhere you wanted to go. If you meet people in Africa, the first thing they'll say to you is, thank you for visiting this country, whichever country that is. Say, say it's Kenya. Thank you so much for visiting Kenya. Please tell your friends. That's what you'll hear. Wow. Yeah. 
that's such a different perception to what obviously the American media feeds Americans. Well, that's propaganda. I, I yeah, I believe that also. Um, and so you just hitchhiked around, and you went through obviously a lot of Muslim countries. Uh, no. No, I, no, I no, thought no. Uh, Tanzania was. Tanzania most... is, but in parts. Um, Zanzibar is, but they're quite pleasant. It's the north. That, so we started in Nairobi. So the problems start north of in the north of Kenya, so Mombasa above. And that's where it hooks on to um, Somalia. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't go we through didn't any go war zones no, or no. Um, incredibly conservative cultures? No. It was, everyone was what, uh, religious-wise? Um, mainly Christian. Okay. Some Buddhist um, and Muslim. Okay. But with Islam, Islam is a really peaceful religion. It's, it's not, you know, it doesn't create war and problems and violence. It actually preaches peace. So the typical Muslim is a really good person, you know, especially if they're following the Quran. It's just the extremists that are sucked in and spat out, and and they create this horrible picture for the rest of the world to see. When you were hitchhiking, did you feel like you had to dress a certain way, or could you just walk around in shorts and a tank top? And oh, feel I always dress in a certain way. Okay. Especially when you're a female traveling alone. So um, I tend to have above my knee covered, and my shoulders covered. So I won't wear like a, a vest top or a singlet or whatever that exposes my whole top half. Mm-hmm. I'll tend to have my shoulders covered, so just a standard t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just uh, but that, I believe that's just my like just that's just me. The other girls that I was traveling with would wear different things as they wished, but for me, I feel more comfortable if I'm a bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. And were you staying in hotels along your hitchhiking tours, or were you staying again in, in private people's homes or churches or something? A bit like of that? everything. So, um, yeah, a bit of everything really. Um, there's not like to say hotel in like makes me laugh when I think of the places I travel because you don't find hotels, but you find people that would rent a room or would rent a hammock or you know things like that it's yeah not really hotels but definitely more often than not especially if we were hitchhiking people will let you stay in their house because everyone just has these like straw mats that they roll out and sleep on the floor so that's that's fine by me as well so if you could give anybody advice um who wanted to do this especially a female who's like desperate to go to africa but maybe has a little fear within herself um what would you advise them on and we'll start off slowly don't push yourself outside of your comfort zone just yet. Like, well, what does that mean? Like what I did. I went there for six months and sussed it out. You know, and realized that it's actually awesome. Like yeah. as a volunteer, you, yeah. you had like places to go and, and there people There are so to many places to go. Mm-hmm. And there's so many genuine people. Of course, there are going to be a few bad eggs. But that's, you know, that's the world. It's life. But, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're worried about all of these things, don't, don't let it be, you know... The, the reason that you don't go if you if you care that much about making sure that it's done properly then then go for an organization like a, an organization that will find you a, a placement like a, a homestay so you still get the authentic experience but you're like looked after by this you know this being above you that regulates what you're doing I don't know maybe so you feel like you've got somebody to complain to so if anything does go wrong I don't know whatever makes you happy but just do it like don't stop living your life because of the what ifs. Brilliantly said. I agree. Um, let's transition into your your last adventure prior to this cycling adventure, which was, uh, I believe, uh, horseback riding across Mongolia. Yes. And now at this point, bring to present, you're married to Nick. Yeah. And you, who concocts the idea that it's going to be a good idea to ride horses across Mongolia? 
So following the Africa trip and Nick's motorbike ride from Singapore to London, Nick and I rode on our motorbike around Europe for about three months. And when we were doing that, we were like, oh, gee, wouldn't it be good to do another motorbike trip together? Two bikes, because I also had a bike. So, we're like, so we went home. We always have to go home after big trips to be able to save up for the next one. We typically do like year on, year off, you know, work really, really hard for a whole year and then try and take as much of that year off, which could be four months, six months, depending on how much things cost and how much money we have. So when we were doing that motorbike ride, we thought, well, let's do another motorbike trip. Let's, let's go Alaska to Patagonia on, a motor, on two motorbikes. So then we started over a period of a year, like doing the logistics of it, and it was just going to end up being way too expensive. Two bikes, two sets of gasoline, two carnets, which is like a, a passport for your bike that you need to have document for that you have to pay for. Two sets of insurance. Insurance is really expensive. There's only one broker in the whole world that will insure like overland travelers on motorbikes. Um, and obviously, you know, shipping the bike to and from and things like that. It was just going to work out to be a pipe dream that we we weren't in a position to be able to afford. So then, randomly, <laughs> we were working on a farm at the time and his mum had sent us a book, a really good book, um, for Christmas. And we were going for a cyclone, so it meant that we had to stay inside for like five days. And we read this book and the book was um, by a friend, now a friend of ours called Tim Cope. Um, in the footsteps of Genghis Khan um, he wrote this book about a horseback trip that he had done and he rode actually for near on three years give or take because a lot of stuff happened to him as he was going really good book totally recommend it but he did it all by horse we're like wow never thought about that because neither Nick or I had ever ridden a horse before so it wasn't in our line of thought so like wouldn't it be really good to do this because now we're starting to really cover all bases of, of transport we're really going to tick all boxes now. We're going to, you know, apart from walking, which I do draw the line out because that is a little bit too slow. But, you know, if you look at horse, look at motorbike, you look at bicycle, you look at hitchhiking, and you look at standard backpacking, like backpacking, then really you, you're getting a, a whole perspective on travel as a whole and you're not really narrowing, you, you know, your, your opinion on on one thing compared to the next. So we're like, wow, this is going to be a really good idea. So then we started thinking seriously about it. And um, yeah, we changed our entire lives to be able to do it because we both had zero horse experience and we needed to really, really learn. Um, so not, what did you do? We moved. We moved three and a half thousand kilometers from where we were living and relocated to the south of, the, of Australia, which we live in the northwest in, in the tropics. Um, so we moved to the southwest in winter, which was bizarre for us, like to suddenly be cold for the first time ever. We like we always skip winters wherever we are, and um, we we just <laughs> we went to pony club. We're like Nick is thirty two, I'm twenty nine, and the two of us turn up at pony club with our little helmets, our jobpers, and our shiny boots lined up next to these four, five, and six-year-olds and literally say to the two women that own the place, we want to learn how to ride. <laughs> we want to ride across Mongolia. <laughs> that is incredible. And they just laughed at us and were like, right, well, you can start by shoveling that shit. <laughs> so we're like, okay. <laughs> and off we went and, um, and began to do it.
So you show up to Pony Club and they tell you to go shovel shit because the six-year-olds are better riders than you are. <laughs> well, that's pretty much how it happened. But they are. They were better riders than us. You know, we had never ridden a horse before and they'd probably been riding for three or four years already. So, in fact, they also became our teachers. But we started off in the round yard. We got, our, we got to grips with the basics. We had told the owners of the club what we had planned to do and, to be fair, they did laugh at us. But they did say they will try their best. And we said we'll also try ours. And what more can you hope for in life, I guess? And you're paying for their service at this point. Yes, absolutely. We're paying. It was 30 bucks an hour. So, um, but, you know, alongside all the children. But it was cool because, you know, in what ended up happening was that we had them teaching us, but we also had all the kids because it made them feel really big and clever, like helping out the, the 30-year-old, like, sit up straight and put your heels down and, you know. <laughs> Is it, I mean... I don't know horses and horseback riding at all. Is there a lot of technique necessary for you to understand how to go about it? Um, I, I would say that I've changed a lot having learned now with my own horses. But if, if, if you're starting from basics and you're wanting to simply ride, yes, you know, it's, there's a, a correct way to do everything, everything that you want to do. There's a correct way to, um, to not confuse the horse so that if any rider jumps on a horse, it knows what to do and you're giving it the same instruction. You know, it's only fair that that horse gets given you know, a head start. That makes sense. I had never thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, the horses that you then um, bought in Mongolia and started riding... Were they able to receive the same sort of... No, they were you know, semi-wild. In Mongolia, it's it's the wild, wild west. And yes, they might ride horses, but they also let them run free for at least six months of the year. So um, whilst they may or may not be broken in, they don't like having people on them. They don't like being touched. They associate humans, you know, typically with pain. You know, they're either making them work or they're hurting them, you know, they... They're lovely people in, in their own way, and they are Buddhists, but they, you know, they, they treat their animals as animals that were treated 100 years ago. They Work beat animals. Them. Yeah, they beat them, and it's, they don't have the same ways that we treat them in, in the West. You know, um, We will stroke them, we will talk to them. I believe that the way that a horse responds is through the tone of your voice. Every horse is multilingual. You know, every horse will understand a command so long as you give it to it in the correct time. And they don't, they don't do that. They, they control animals, you know. It's, it's a different feeling. I'm of the opinion that you cannot own an animal. An animal is a free spirit. It, you can be responsible for an animal, but you can't own it, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're now in Western Australia in Perth. Mm, Albany. Albany, sorry. And you practice riding horses for a year? Uh, eight you- months. Eight months and you're yeah. doing the logistics of like how this is all going to play out when you yeah. land in Mongolia. And more importantly, the veterinary skills involved with taking on an expedition such as ours. So um, to recap, what we actually did was enter into um, Mongolia through the Russian border, buy horses, semi-wild horses, train them, and then proceed to ride towards China. So across entire Mongolia on our horses, alone, without a guide. So it's just myself and Nick and two pack horses. So we had four horses between us. And the preparation it took to take make this endeavor took how long? I'd told? say two years, but seriously, like full time for one year. With all of the preparation and logistics involved, i.e., you know, sponsors, organizing the gear, getting it delivered, you know, all of those such things. I'll, I'll connect in the show notes where people can find all this and, and read more about your trip. Yeah, but, absolutely. So you're land, you come across the border from Russia into Mongolia, and and what you go up to somebody who sells horses and buy mm. a horse. Like how did that work? Yeah. So um, 
we had did our, did our best to research um, contacts in the area before we arrived. Um, and we just went about trying to find a translator because it's um, in Bayanolgi, which is straight over the border, it's Kazakh uh, origin. So It's Mongolia, but it's still kind of yeah, Kazakhstan. Yeah, no, it's mainly Kazakh. So Mongolia is broken down into states, as many countries are, and one state is called Bayanolgi, and it's on the border with Kazakhstan. And long, long time ago, Mongolia invited the Kazakhs to cross the mountains and reside in Mongolia because it needed to raise the population. The same with the Chinese, the same with the Tuvans from Russia. Everyone came to populate this area because the population of Mongolia is so small and they wanted to grow it. So everybody um, kind of lives together in this one state and then apart from that state, people are mainly Mongolian. There are not that many Mongolians living in, in Bayanolgi. So the, the language that is spoken is Kazakh. So when we arrived there, and I have not trained in Kazakh. I only but you in did train in Mongolian. Absolutely I did, yeah. So you learned Mongolian prior to Yeah, I learned full-time for a year before we went. I, learned, I studied for about four times a week um, for about a year before we went because we were told straight up that you just simply can't, you can't do it unless you can communicate. And it's true. I don't know how we would have done it if, if we couldn't communicate. Okay. So now you're landing, you're in you're Mongolia, but Kazakh, you're dealing with Kazakh people. Yeah. Negotiating so we found, a, we found a translator. Found a translator. We hired a Russian van and we spent a few days going to every single herder in, in the area and then bringing us the horses that they were happy to sell. At this point, it was the end of winter. It was snowing when we arrived there in May. Um, Mongolia has about an eight-month-long winter. So we got there. It was freezing. Um... They showed us all these horses. These horses are so skinny. They haven't eaten for well, near on eight months. They ha- they eat during the summer when the sun um, when the grass grows, but then when everything's covered in ice, they can't reach the grass because it's under like a foot of ice, you know. Um, they they use the snow as their water source because the the lakes and the rivers are all frozen over. They just chew on on snow, and that's them. And there's a saying um, that says. Um, that the horses in Mongolia after the winter are bald because they're so hungry that they've eaten the hair off of each other's back, oh. and that's and that's the truth. You know, these horses are so hairy when it comes coming into winter because they grow their winter coat, and then you know it just all disappears. So at this point, is it like looking like bleak? Looking like? is like looking at the worst possible horse. It's like a horse that you should report to the RSPCA. And you have to look at that horse as the potential to buy it, train it, feed it, and ride it further than it's ever ridden in its entire life. You know, you're taking this horse on a journey. This horse is going to see more of its country than it ever dreamed of. And and there you are looking at this bony bag of mess that's like, are you the one for me? <laughs> How many people have actually accomplished this? Um, from one end to the other going east to west? A couple people have, um, but mainly with guides. Okay. So um, the guy who we read a book um, the book from, he he had started in Mongolia. So when he started, he started with a guide. For the first couple of months, he had a guide with him. So and then he carried on and he went solo. So he accomplished a lot more than anyone ever has in in terms of um, equestrian travel of our generation. Um, but there is a guild that um, recognizes all long distance equestrian travel for anyone that's ever done it of, of any year. And if you look through that, you can see it doesn't actually state whether they had a guide or not. 
and to me that would be taking away half the fun i.e you know you've got somebody to you've got somebody that's employed by you you know they can watch the horses overnight they can prepare the food they can set up your tent if you're really tired they can help take off all the saddlery and everything and you know and, and they can speak the language so if someone comes over to bother you, they can tell them to fuck off. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that yourself and you've got them, then life's good. And if mm-hmm. you're on your own, sometimes shit can get really scary. Mm-hmm. So so you get the horses um, and you train them. Uh-huh. And how long did that take? About a month. So you're training them in, in the state of Kazakh, which is still Mongolia. Yeah. And preparing, I mean... We're you, feeding them. Feeding them like four times a day. Okay. So um, they had never had grain before they met us. Okay. So they only had, because uh, of course, you know, why would you pay to feed a horse? You know, if you can, can't even afford to feed your family, you're not going to pay to feed your horse. So um, we had to train them to eat grain. And the way that we did that, and this is the Kazakh um, herders helped us with this, is we cut up um, the muslin bags and made like little sh- sh- face shapes for, for the horse, filled it with a small amount of grain and tied it around their heads. And they would go crazy, like, trying to get this thing off. Like, what is this? What have you done to me? I can't breathe. I can't see. Ah! Until they realized that if they just ate it, they could breathe. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what happens is they grow to love it. You know, it's, it's like giving a kid chocolate, you know. They might not like it at first, but sure as shit, they're going to love it after a couple bites. Uh-huh. So that's what happens. So any time that um, we would go to feed our horses after the initial um, outburst, they, yeah, it was like their favorite food. It was a crazy treat. They would go, they would go nuts. They'd be like neighing, singing, kicking, like give it to me, give it to me. No, they were cool. Are they're you camping horses. at this point too? We like, camp the entire time. So at this point, you're training your horses. You're living outside the horse stall next to them. Uh, to, we were help, helped by the guy that um, helped us, the translator guy. He hooked us up with his uncle, and he was a horse trainer so he helped us because these horses are semi-wild so when they escape you need help to get them back again and they escape a lot you know that's what they're used to doing they're not used to being put in stables or in in four walls they'll jump those walls they'll find a way you know they'll kick the wall down because they're just you know it's not like a wall that you and I know it's made out of like cow dung you know so (laughs) so they'll kick that wall down and they'll go and then the rest will follow and are you just like having the best time ever doing no, this? No, the this worst like time. A nightmare. Yeah, the worst time. It was really stressful. But you had, it was a little bit easier having that first couple of weeks with other people helping you out. You know, people that can speak, people that will teach you um, how, you know, the lay of the steps. So they have their ways, their methods that these horses obviously know. And we do not know. So we had to learn their methods because if we wanted to like learn how to control these horses better, we needed to learn them too. We might not agree with them, but if it's all that a horse has ever been taught, then how is it to know that it's, the rules have changed overnight for a new owner? You know, a new responsible adult has come along and said, I'm going to take care of you now, but this is how it's done. Mm-hmm. Not that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And the horse doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. So it's really beneficial to go go backwards a few steps before you can go forwards. And how is your Mongolian at this point? Terrible. Well, it was in Kazakh. So, so they don't even speak Mongolian? They don't speak Mongolian at all, no. Um, but I, I was there for a month, so I learned a lot of Kazakh. Mm-hmm. Um, all my my little words that I needed to use immediately. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't invest any time. Mm-hmm. That actually took me um, took me behind in my in my Mongolian literature. Um, my skills in my Mongolian language because I, I'd swapped. I'd gone from 
speaking Mongolian during my lessons and then doing a month of um, Kazakh and then trying to get back. And it took a little while to get back into it. Okay. And now so the horses are trained? And you're yep. ready to, ready to mount sail. up. You yeah. set sail, you mount we, up. We mount up and off we go. And it was so freaking scary. Was it? It was so scary. Like everything about it. I was so stressed out. Like my entire body ached. I was, my horse that I was riding at the time was really aggro. He didn't like it. He didn't like having a bit. He'd never had a bit before. So he was just waving his head around and like turning around and tangling himself up in ropes and really really testing me and so for the first week yeah I was an emotional wreck but um yeah we got through it oh and the mosquitoes were really bad for that first week as well we were tracking a river and the summer had just started so they were covered in march flies so they were pouring with blood the horses had like streams of blood coming out their sides and you just couldn't do enough to get these march flies away and then the sand flies came and then the mosquitoes came and my poor horse milky his name was because he looked like a cow he was like patchy like a cow it's the first time i'd ever seen that in a horse um he um he's balls got bitten so badly they were gigantic like they were huge there were like two tennis balls hanging off of him the poor yeah. thing and his dick didn't come out for the whole week because <laughs> he was too scared like he just pissed from inside himself like, <laughs> I got photos of it these gigantic balls but <laughs> so the, are you following a map? yes yes the entire trip we led by map and compass okay yeah Unguided, entire trip. Unguided, only by the local people along the step as we as we rolled. So that's where I say that the language knowledge was very very important because we were literally going by maps. Um, and the best thing about Mongolia for this type of travel is there are no fences, there are no boundaries, and there's very few people. Uh, the houses that are there are I think you call them yurts in America, gurs in M- Mongolia. So these felt tents that everyone lives in, which obviously you know, put up and taken down and replaced in another in another area quite easily. Then nomadic lifestyle, they they relocate sort of up to six times a year depending on the seasons and depending on where the pasture is best for their livestock. It's a really beautiful lifestyle. It's a very difficult lifestyle and very trying for them most of the year. But it's a very beautiful lifestyle. What was your first encounter with the local population? With Mongolians or with Kazakhs? I, uh, just the first person you encountered after that first week of sounding like hell like did you come across people that whole week or was it yeah pretty much because we were, we were still in Bayanogi so they were all Kazakhs and this is what led us into a full sense of security Kazakh people were wonderful like, they're very different to Mongolians but of course it was the only thing we'd been exposed to at the time so we didn't know the difference Kazakhs are Muslim Mongols are Buddhists um, they're both very different types of, of people, uh, different characters, different everything. Even their um, their girls, their yurts, they're different. They look different. The way that they um, respect their women is different. Uh, the woman in a Kazakh girl is, is the head of, of the house and she, um, so everyone sits on a circular table, well they sit on the floor next to a circular table and they pour tea for everybody and the woman pours, the woman of the house pause it for everybody and then she pauses second round you have to drink three bowls of tea before you can leave it's just the way that they work but then you go into a mongol girl and it's very different the woman is like 
invisible. You know, she's somebody that you see in the in the background. She is the home help. You know, it's it's a different vibe, completely different vibe. And it was really difficult for us to transition into Mongolia when we left Bayanalgi. Let's talk about that a little bit because you're, again, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Western woman. The one that speaks the language. The one that speaks the language. And my husband, who sat next to me, who is supposed to do everything, doesn't speak any Mongolian. So these men have to deal with me. So it's very difficult. Let's talk about that. So what's that like then? I mean, are you being disrespected every single second? Like, how do they receive you? Um, with a pinch of salt, I guess. I feel like the way that I explained it was that in our culture, this is what we do. Because they wouldn't know anything else. They wouldn't know any otherwise. So I just covered it like that. I covered a lot of things. The first maybe month, um, the first question that people ask you is, are you married? Yes, we're married. How many children do you have? And when we would say, none, they'd look at me as if I was like some barren woman that should be ashamed, you know. And it was a really horrible feeling. I didn't like it, you know. And if you can speak a language perfectly well, you can justify yourself if you feel like you need to. But when you're not that good at a language, you don't want to feel like that, especially when it's the first question that somebody asks you. So all we did was start telling people that we have two kids, but they're in Australia with Nick's mum. And that was totally fine. That was totally cool, because that is in their culture as well. That's what they do. Oh, okay. So if you're here, who's looking after your animals back in Australia? Oh, Nick's dad's looking after our animals back in Australia. So, and then the conversation would flow with smiles on their faces. But if we came across too different, then it became an issue. Interesting. And then so, yeah, what kind of issues did actually come up throughout this, uh, this time period? Because you did, what, five months? It took you five months yeah. to cross? So we had five robberies. Five robberies. Yeah, and between Nick and I, we've been to, I don't know, a hundred and something countries, and neither of us have ever encountered a robbery before. And like I said earlier, we travel quite precariously, so... You know, if someone was going to rob us, it could have happened by now, you know. But in this country, it definitely did. We got robbed five times. We had a horse stolen. They have a real big problem in in Mongolia, not the Kazakh province, but in Mongolia, they have a, a real big problem with alcoholism. And that was prevalent every time we became came close to a populated area. Um, we had guys trying to take me on a number of occasions. Kidnap you. Yeah, uh, take me to rape me, and then I guess don't know what he would do with me after that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just to take me. Um, Which is really scary for me, because when they come and they say, they're shouting at Nick what they're going to do, I can understand them, and Nick can't. So for me, I'm translating. Nick can see this guy being aggressive, but a guy being aggressive and drunk and slurring his words and whatever, it means one thing to somebody that doesn't understand the language but to me who is talking about me I'm going Nick he's saying he's going to take me help me help me what should I do what I don't know what to do you know you go into a state of panic and especially when you've got your husband there whether you I'm a strong independent woman but regardless like I, I break down into tears and look to my husband for direction mm-hmm. you know as, as many women do and, and as he does for me of course you mm-hmm. know he would always look to me but yeah, it's really scary when you can understand what someone's trying to do to you and you're trying to tell the other person, you know. So, so culturally, it's it's an aggressive culture, would you say? It's very aggressive. It's um, I would say it's lawless. If people ask me today how I would best describe Mongolia, I would say unpredictable. Because in one 
one day or one moment of a day, you feel like you're on top of the world, that life couldn't get any better, that everything is amazing, the people are wonderful, you're taking in the hospitality is in abundance, and then all of a sudden, a split second, your world comes crashing down. And had that have only happened once or twice, then I just put that off to a couple of bad eggs in you know a large batch. But that didn't. It happened numerous times. So much so that you were waiting for it to happen. And that's not a nice feeling. Sounds like a highly stressful environment. It was incredibly stressful. Last the holiday now. That's <laughs> the bicycle trip. Okay. So you got through it though. You did. You we did. did. You did. And it. I'm you were so proud of us. Out of how many people who've attempted, you're one of a couple of how many? Five. In the last 50 years, who have done oh, this? I don't know, 50 years. Oh. I'm talking about people that I contact, I um, reached out to to get advice from when we were preparing for the trip. There were a few people that have attempted it and um, have been unsuccessful due to horse theft mainly and due to the people. It's always about the people in Mongolia. They ruin it. Mm. You know? um, what were some of the most beautiful aspects about the trip? Everything of it. Everything about it was beautiful. It was the best five months of my entire life. And regardless of how difficult and challenging it was at times, I don't, I don't want to change any of that. Because if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And I, I actively went there knowing these challenges. This is no secret. Nobody talks about Mongolia when, when you're a solo traveler trying to do the things that I was trying to do. Nobody talks about Mongolia and says, oh, it was, it was amazing, it was so romantic, the people, this, the the landscape that they tell you for real what actually happens and why they failed or why they succeeded in respect of how they could have failed etc and so we still went there we took it all on board and we're like yeah we want this we want this challenge because it's not easy you know who wants to do things that are easy so then in the end I mean you obviously had to then sell your horses and, yeah. and, and move on what was that like was I mean you created horrendous. these bonds with these animals yeah so when you as any horse owner, owner, I keep saying that, as any horse lover would understand, horses are, I, I, see, I saw my horses like people, you know, their characters are so strong, they, you can feel who they are, they show you their character all day, all night long, and there we were living with these creatures and loving them constantly, all day, every day, and, and the journey for us began about us, about our goals, but after, like, I don't know, even just a month, we realised with a big punch in the face that it's nothing to do with us. The journey's all about them, and we'll go for as far as they'll take us, and to where they want, like, you know, for as, as much as they can ride in a day, they need to eat, they need to drink, they're the priority, they need to rest, they're doing all the hard work. All we're doing is caring for them and sitting on them. You know, they deserve everything we deserve nothing so that's kind of how we changed our perspective on the trip to look to look towards them and it really did it became a journey about them so when we came to selling them yeah it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life because it's like saying goodbye to your children you're spending 24 hours a day with these creatures you're sleeping next to them you well, we didn't even sleep after the horse theft we began a 24-hour um, shift overnight where one of us would sleep for two hours, the other one would be on watch, and then the other one would sleep, etc., etc., for the whole night. So, and that became a routine as well because we did everything that we could so, so that somebody didn't steal the rest of our of our steed. But um, 
yeah, selling them was really, really, really hard for both of us. And it opened up a, a whole level of emotions that I've never experienced before. Prior to that trip, I'd, I'd, I'd never had animals. I didn't have pets. I was always really awkward with animals. Hmm. So for me, this was a huge deal. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but all I can say is that I did my absolute best by them. I'm really happy as to where they, where they ended up. They have a really good life now. And I'm happy with that. You know, I can't do much more for them in a country that eats horse for eight months of the year. I managed to save them from death this year. I can't save them from death next year because, you know, I'm not with them. Mm. And Mongolians will do what Mongolians want. But I saved them for one year at least. Mm. That's beautiful, very poetic. Thank you for sharing that. And now you're on what you're calling a vacation. Yeah, it is which a total holiday. Riding a bicycle mm. from Los Angeles. What's the destination? No destination. No destination. Only about the journey in between. Just just ride every day, and then if you want to take a right, you take a right. If you want to take a left, you take no, a right. No, we're going south. Okay. And um, so from LA straight through Baja, and then across to the mainland of Mexico, and straight all the way down through Central America, there's pretty much only one road. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get like the um, trans, Trans-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll try and help hit our way into Colombia by I don't know if we'll have to get a boat or fly we haven't decided yet we haven't even spoken about it yet we'll work it out when we get to Panama and then we'll just keep going south I actually fully shit myself at the fort of the Andes that I'm happy to put it off for as long as possible but it it isn't um, an expedition this it is a holiday so if we want to take rides we'll take rides you know there's so many people that offer you especially when when you're like for example in Honduras like we were on a dirt road and a steep incline I'm pushing my bike up the hill which is a 32 kilometer incline pushing my bike I'm slipping out of my shoes because the incline is so steep and my bike's so heavy and I'm growing blisters and I, I pickup truck pulls up next to us and like do you want to hop in yeah i'm gonna say yeah i'm not raising money for charity i'm not trying to do this legit i'm on holiday thank you for the ride (laughs) that's incredible i mean you just i'm just so inspired by what you guys do and the way you do it and i think a lot of people could learn a lot from these stories that you've just told and what kind of advice would you give somebody who contemplates this type of travel this type of lifestyle like but doesn't necessarily know where to start or have the courage to start. Bicycle is the easiest one. Bicycle. So for me, uh, you need no training. Like, I haven't ridden a bicycle since I was, like, eight years old. Nick and I were in China. We decided to do this. We flew to L.A. We bought two bicycles, and off we went. I haven't ridden a bike much. I'm not one of those hardcore people that rides to work or anything. I don't even own a bicycle. Like, wouldn't it be cool if that horse could turn off at night. If we could padlock that horse up and it not speak until tomorrow, not need me, not eat, not shit, not drink until tomorrow, that would be awesome. We'd have so much more time for each other. Ah, the answer is a bicycle. Okay. And the bicycle is a free method of transport to get to wherever you want to get to, literally just using your own steam. And it's really rewarding. It's really not that hard. Like, I'm not super fit or anything crazy. I'm just normal. Um, and you just go people go um, as fast or as slow as they want like it's really not that hard to do 60-70 kilometers in a day that only takes you maybe three hours and then you spend the rest of the day exploring or just hanging out reading a book or whatever 
but um, yeah, you get you get somewhere when you just talk, like you just tick off the kilometers on a daily basis or for five days a week or whatever suits your your lifestyle. And it's free. It's completely free, and anyone can do it. There's no way that somebody can say that they can't ride a bicycle. I love it. I mean, well said, and thank you for sharing. We appreciate hearing from you, and congratulations on all your uh, accomplishments. Good luck with uh, the <laughs> rest of your... It's just my life. It's not really an accomplishment. <laughs> I think a lot of people would say differently. I think that a lot of people... Um... I'm not special. you just got to want it enough. That's all it is. I don't own a house. I don't own a car, and... You know, my resume is pretty shoddy because I take a year out every every other year. But what's important to me is memories, and you can't buy those things. I've got the rest of my life to own a house. I've got the rest of my life to make a family with my husband. But I don't have the rest of our lives to do this. And while some people might do this post-50, post-retirement, I'm not going to have my health then. I'm, I'm going to have arthritic hips. You know, I want to be able to do it now while I'm, I'm able and I'm able to enjoy it. That's all. I'm, I'm not doing anything different to, to anyone else. It's just that I want it hard enough and I put my head down and I work my butt off and I can afford it and then I go. Thank you. Well, so thank you for coming on the show and good luck with everything. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.